Christ again, good morning. I love that because um, I was a fifth grade school teacher before, and I would say, good morning, and all my fifth, good morning, Mr. Zapata. So I kind of missed that, so thank you. Thank you for responding. Um, thank you. Thank you, class. Uh, so it's my privilege to uh, go through the first book of Samuel, chapter 7 today. If you don't know me, my name is Marco Zapata. I'm one of the elders here at Christ the King. And uh, this first Samuel is a book about kings. It's a book about the monarchy in Israel, therefore the name we chose for our series, A Kingdom in Search of a King. But the author of the book of Samuel doesn't begin his narrative with the birth or, or the childhood of a king, like Saul, David, Solomon, etc., the author decides to begin the first three chapters with something much more important, I think, the birth and the childhood of Samuel, the prophet that will eventually anoint the first two kings of Israel. It's like the author is saying, yeah, kings are important, but please, let's not miss this. Let's not miss the man that was sent by the king of kings. So after the first three chapters, the narrative then leaves Samuel and focuses on how the people of Israel go into war with the Philistines. Instead of trusting the Lord, the Israelites think they have a secret weapon, a lucky charm or a magic box like Pastor Dawson called it. They say, oh, if we take the Ark of the Covenant to war with us, we'll automatically win. Game over. But not only do they lose the war, the Philistines capture the Ark and then take it away. Many of you know that my dad was a pastor. He passed away earlier this year. So being a pastor, he obviously had all kinds of Christian decor around the house. Anything from uh, praying hands, angels, crosses, you name it. It was there. And not too long ago, I preached my first sermon. And right after the service, my family did something really nice for me. They approached me as I was getting off, off of the pulpit, and they said, Marcos, we are sure that that would have been so proud of you. And we are sure that he would have wanted you to have this. And they gave me a little replica of the Ark of the Covenant. It's right here. I have it right here. It's pretty cool, right? I feel like show and tell. And see the cherubim are right here. And so just like, uh, so I just wanted to share that with you. I know that Pastor Chuck has his John Calvin bobblehead. So I have my Ark. Well, We'll keep it right here. <laughs> so in the Old Testament, uh, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of the Lord. And the Philistines were not supposed to have it. So God punishes them with tumors. And the Philistines say, uh-uh, no thank you. We have to get rid of this. And they send it back to Israel. Previously, in his law, God had warned the people not to look inside the ark. Yet, when the Israelites receive it, some of them do look inside, and 70 men fall dead instantly. Power of God. The Israelites decide to send it to the house of a guy called Eleazar. Imagine if that happened to you. Uh, hey, brother Rick Johnson. We talked, and you know the ark that killed 70 people? We decided we're going to take it to your house. We're going to put it right there in your living room. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, 
I don't know. Imagine the responsibility of that. But anyways, the ark ends up staying at Eliezer's uh, for 20 years. And even though the ark had returned, that section of the Bible that we read last week finishes saying, all Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. And I would say that they were right in feeling that way. Not only had they ceased to deposit their faith in the Lord, you also have to add the 400-plus years of the period of the judges before this where it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They had lived in disregard to the Lord for a long time. And I think that often we go through life that very same way. Not putting God as center of our lives, making life decisions in disregard to the Lord. Before we begin today, um, let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Open our hearts this morning that we may be able to receive your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this morning, instead of reading the whole passage, I'll just read two or three verses. We'll talk about it, and then I'll read another couple and so on. And I'll start reading on 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 and 4. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This is the word of the Lord. So the people of Israel were now worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations, Baal, Ashtaroth. Baal is the god of weather and fertility. Ashtaroth is the female version, the goddess of fertility and sex. You might say the god of weather, Baal. Why worship the god of weather? Well, think about it. If you're an Israelite and you want to become successful, you want to become wealthy, what kind of business would you go into? Oh, I know. They were probably YouTubers and TikTokers. Well, no. Think about in the Old Testament when the Bible talks about someone wealthy, like Abraham or Job maybe. Their wealth is described in the amount of cattle or livestock that they had. Livestock live off of crops, so they knew about farming. Many of them reached the conclusion, ah, the better the weather, the more successful I'll be. So, oh, okay, I need to praise and offer sacrifices to the God of weather. So it's still about money, idolatry. And just like in chapter 4, we saw the Israelites putting their faith in the ark and not in God. Now we see them putting their faith in other idols. And we might shake our finger at the Israelites, oh, how could they do this? But instead, we should be asking, how are we doing the same thing? We commit idolatry every single day. 
by depositing our faith in people, by depositing our faith in objects. So Samuel, in the verses we just read, is talking about repentance. But not simply words. It's really like he's saying, well, I'm sorry, it's, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. But then we go and do it over and over, over again. What would you think of a person like that? Samuel is instructing the people to also demonstrate the genuineness of their repentant words with action. So in a sense, there are two parts to repentance. There's the inward part, but then there's an outward part as well. Our inward repentance is between us and God alone. Only He truly knows if we repented sincerely or not. But then the outward part comes into play. If we truly and sincerely repented, then it will show in our actions. It's inevitable. But the inward portion has to be first. I've had people in the past tell me, Marcos, you know, when, when I pray, I feel like God isn't listening to me. And one of the things I've said to this is, well, you know, in the past, when I felt sort of like, like that, like you have, that God isn't listening to my prayers, I like to ask myself the question, have I sincerely repented from my sin? And I like to go back to Psalm 66, and it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Why would God listen to the cry of the Israelites if they don't first repent from their sin? Or why would God listen to you or me if we insist living in rebellion? Repentance is first. And repentance is... It's a change in the direction we were going and then going in the direction of the Lord. Notice that in the verse, Samuel gives three commands to repentance. Step one, turn away from idolatry. That's the first step for us as well, isn't it? When we uh, commit any kind of sin, stop going in the wrong direction. It's not doing you any good. Step two, Samuel says, direct your heart to the Lord. It's not enough just to eliminate the bad. Now we must begin pursuing the correct path. And step three, serve him alone. Not only does God want, but he also deserves complete exclusivity. You cannot serve two masters. So it looks like the people of Israel are finally starting to get it. They are starting to see that the chaos they find themselves in is because of their sin. It's because of their rebellion against God. Verses 5 and 6. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at the city of Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. The pouring of the water that we see here is a symbolism of what we have talking about, repentance. 
It represents people's hearts being poured out before the Lord along with a fervent desire to seek God. And also notice their admittance in their words. We have sinned against the Lord. We're guilty. It looks like they are starting to take the steps in the right direction. Verses 7 and 8. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at the city of Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 7 tells us that while this revival, this great gathering of repentance is taking place, the Philistines find out about it. And we have to remember this is a time with no phones, no, no internet. So it's believed that both camps relied on spies to report information from the enemy. Now, imagine the Philistine spies witnessing this repentance of the Israelites and then going to report back to their camp. Hey, hey guys, guess what we just saw back there? You're not going to believe this. The Israelites are all pouring water, and they're all crying. They're just a bunch of crybabies. I, I think that this is the perfect time to attack them and finish them off completely. You're like, ah, you're right. This is a good time. We should go attack. Let's attack. And they do attack. But here's a question that I want us to reflect on. When is a man really at his weakest? Let's leave the city of Mizpah for a little bit, and let's go to Jerusalem, to the New Testament. Jesus tells a parable to his disciples. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee's prayer is something like this, God, thank you, for I am not like those that cheat, those that rob, those that are unfaithful. Thank you, for I am not like this tax collector over here. But the tax collector was standing at a distance in the shadows. He didn't even feel worthy to look up. And he was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm nothing but a sinner. I need you. And Jesus says, this tax collector went home justified, but the Pharisee did not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now think back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, when the Israelites were confident and sure that the victory would be theirs if they simply took the ark with them. But it turned out to be a manslaughter. Now let's return to the city of Mizpah. The Philistines do launch an attack on the Israelites, but they made a terrible mistake, didn't they? 
because they fail to realize that when someone is arrogant, confident in his own powers, with disregard to the Lord, he is really at his weakest. But when a person is at his lowest, admitting his inability and broken before the Lord like the Israelites were, they were really at their strongest. There is true power there, for God Almighty is on your side. In verse 9, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Being a man of God, Samuel had the right idea here when it came to the sacrifice. Repentance is, is first. He knew exactly what to do, and perhaps at the time it was sort of strange to some. Uh, Samuel, excuse me, um, you do know the, the Philistines are attacking us right now, right? Is this the best time for a sacrifice? <laughs> Should, shouldn't we be sharpening our swords or something? I don't know. But Samuel knew exactly what to do. It's like they were saying, and I'm about to get a bit graphic here, I'm sorry, but he takes this nursing lamb and they slit the throat, all the blood pours out, they chop it into pieces and they, and they throw it completely in the fire. And you might ask, why the brutality? What's the point of this? But see, Samuel understood very well what we are doing here to this little lamb, that's exactly what we deserve done to us. We are saying, thank you, God, for not giving us what we deserve. God of great mercy that gives to another the punishment that we rightfully deserve. And that's exactly what we do here at Christ the King every Sunday. When we come to the Lord's table, we need to come humbly in repentance like the tax collector and say, I don't deserve any of this by my own merits. But our Lord Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb, took the punishment for me. And now he invites me, a sinner, to come to his table. Verses 10 and 11. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Beth Car. So to defeat the Philistine army, God throws them into a great confusion, it says. And this is the same word that is used uh, when the Lord threw into confusion the Egyptian army as the Red Sea was closing in on them. But here, the Lord defeats the Philistines with thunder. Another version says, loud thunderbolts. And I started wondering about that. Why thunder? It's like God wanted everyone around to hear and know who the great God of Israel is. 
Imagine what it must have sounded like. Pure terror. If they would have had dogs, they would probably be under the, under the coffee table somewhere. But while that same sound for the Philistines was chaos, shock, horror, imagine it, the same sound for the Hebrews was victory, confidence, deliverance. The same sound. What side are we on? Are we on the Lord's side? How do we want to perceive the Lord's thunder? Let's put our trust in the Lord. In chapter 5, remember a little bit, we saw Philistine god Dagon, the god of corn. And remember what God did to Dagon? The Lord flattened him out. TKO. Breaks off his hands, his head, to where his people have to come pick him up. How ridiculous. I don't know about you, but I don't want a God I have to go pick up. No, I have enough problems as it is. I want a God that picks me up when I'm down. So with Dagon, it's like God is saying, oh, that's your God right there? The one on the floor? And let's remember, at the beginning of, re, of, of this chapter, we just read it, what God were people adoring? Baal, the God of weather. In some ancient pictures, if you look up Baal, he's represented holding a lightning bolt. And it's like the Lord now again is saying, oh, that's your God, the God of weather. I'll show you who the real God of thunder is. So the Philistines are defeated that day, and the Israelites chase them off. I wonder what the Israelites felt or thought after the battle. I hope they didn't feel, yeah, that's right. That's what you get for messing with me. Look at these guns right here. But the question is, who really won the battle that day? There's a great scene in the movie, The Lion King. Little lion cub Simba is told he can go everywhere in the kingdom except to this really bad place called the Elephant Graveyard. And it sounds very much like what happened at the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You can eat from any tree except this one. And guess where little Simba wants to go? The Elephant Graveyard, of course. And he does. And as soon as Simba gets there, he's surrounded by three very bad hyenas. And they want to have some Simba tacos. <laughs> and they corner him. And Simba thinks, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just simply roar at them. So Simba prepares. And then he goes, <laughs> I mean, it's this little very pathetic little roar. And you can imagine the hyenas, they're just rolling on the, on the floor laughing. And they even taunt little Simba. Oh, that's so scary. Do it again. Do it again. And Simba says, oh, yeah, I'll do it again. And then he prepares again. But then something really interesting starts happening. You can see that the faces of the hyenas starts to change. And you see that this shadow throughout covers them up. And it appears that Simba lets out this thunderous roar. But it turns out 
that it's mighty Lion King Mufasa that has come to save the day. When it appears that you and I have won any kind of battle, we should remember that the victory belongs to that to he that goes before us. Our great king, the Lion of Judah, he is the victor. So the Lord defeated the Philistines that day. But I think that there's something even more incredible here. Some decades before this event, after Samuel's birth, his mother, Hannah, elevated a prayer of praise to God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. This also turns out to be a prophetic prayer, and Hannah couldn't have been more right. Take a look at what 1 Samuel 2 verses 9 and 10 say. No one will succeed by strength alone. In other words, no one will succeed by his own strength. The Israelites tried, and they found they were unable to. And then she says, And those who fight against the Lord, the Philistines, will be shattered. He, what? He thunders against them from heaven. He will defeat them with thunder. That's incredible. When we read the Bible, there are so many connections just like this one that we constantly just miss. When we read the Bible, we should keep in mind that these are not just simply a compilation of stories. The whole Bible is one single story from beginning to end. God has always had one plan of salvation. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. After everything is said and done, after God answers our prayers, it's very easy to forget him, isn't it? We all do it. But Samuel, knowing this very well, he decides to set a stone of remembrance. He calls it Ebenezer, not Scrooge. Not only to commemorate God's victory that day, but also to help the people remember the different end results that we could have. When we disregard God, when we live in disregard to God, it will never end well for us. But when we repent and serve Him alone, it will turn out very, very differently. Ebenezer means stone of help. And Samuel says, till now the Lord has helped us. God is sovereign. He provides the blessings and he also wins the battles. How many of us here can raise an Ebenezer today? How many of us can say, I look at the past and I thank you, God, for what you have done in my life. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for rescuing me. God is faithful. If we serve and follow him, he will never abandon us. And looking at the past is also a great way to anticipate and hope 
in the future. Verses 13 and 14. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Ekron and Gath were major Philistine cities. But previously, they had belonged to Israel, but were conquered by the Philistines and taken in battle. And now the Lord helps Israel regain its territory. Brothers, we are also fighting a war today. It's a spiritual battle. And perhaps there's also territory or areas in our lives that the enemy has been taking. Maybe we have lost some confidence in the Lord in certain areas of our life. Maybe we have given in to some of the lies of the world. We can regain that terry from the enemy. But just like in today's passage, it all begins with repentance. And notice in verse 14, it says the words restored, the cities were restored, and also says that after, and there was peace. Restored, peace. Those two words are great. Because that's exactly how God works with us as well. When we rebel against Him, we invite hardship, hardship in our lives. But when we confess our sin and repent, what does God do? He restores us and then He gives us peace. The last three verses, 15, 16, 17, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year from Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. These verses are great. They're a summary of Samuel's life. He turned out to be one of the best leaders Israel ever had. As a prophet, he would lead Israel for the next 30 plus years. Samuel had a tremendous influence. Here we see him building an altar in his hometown, which became the worship center of the nation. During Samuel's life in ministry, so he performed, he performed many duties that a, that a priest would. Samuel closed out the era of the judges. He served as the last judge, and then he would also help open up the following era, the era of the kings. But as great a leader as Samuel was, he merely just foreshadows 
the greatest man to ever walk on this earth, our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. As a prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is the ultimate leader. He is complete within himself. He is the perfect intercessor that we need. The only way to the Father. If you are here today and have not given your life completely to Jesus, I urge you, don't wait. Allow God to restore you and allow God to give you the peace that only He can give. If you already are a Christian, let's continue surrendering all areas of our life to the Lord. And let's continue thanking Him for all He has done. Let's raise an Ebenezer today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you today. We ask that you take away from us any sense of pride. Continue to work in us, Lord. Renew us, restore us, give us your peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.